Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I intend to cover Romans 3, verses 19 through 31. Our context is this. In the first 18 verses of Romans 3, Paul went out of his way to convince the Jews who were very proud, didn't think they needed to be justified in any way before God because they had the Old Testament law, the oracles of God, the law of Moses. And so Paul went to a lot of trouble quoting from the Hebrew Scriptures saying that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He mentioned the fact that everybody has got feet that shed the blood and throats that are open graves and tongues under which are snakes with viper's venom and all that kind of stuff. So he's getting on his fellow Jews who are proud about not having the law. So we're going to look here in Romans 3.19 and we're going to look at how we actually get justified, how we escape the penalty of that law that the Jews thought they could escape just by ignoring the the righteous requirements of it and not practicing it, but they thought they were justified anyway. And now Paul is going to say, no, this is how you get justified. And he's previously talked about how wrath, he talked about wrath a lot in Romans 3 and Romans 2 too, wrath against the Gentiles in Romans 2, wrath against the Jews in Romans 3. He talked about wrath is going to fall on you. It's God's righteous judgment is going to fall on all of mankind because of their sins. But now he's going to get to the good news. That was the bad news. Now he's going to get to the good news. And the good news is not that you've got the law. The good news is that you're justified by faith in Christ. So we start in verse 19 of Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. Now notice that Paul says we know. He's talking about we Christians know. And he's more specifically talking about we Jewish Christians know. Paul liked to use that term. We know in a previous audio, I listed out a whole bunch of verses where Paul uses that phrase, we know. He appeals to common experience. I won't do that here. But here's one of them, Romans 2, 2. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. So Paul is using a common rhetorical advice, trying to appeal to common interest with the audience. And he says that whatever the law speak, says, and he's talking about the Old Testament law, the Jewish law, According to the NIV Study Bible, now, of course, whenever you see law in Romans, people are going to controvert it. Gill says it's talking about the moral law, which would refer to the law that speaks to Gentiles as well as Jews. Adam Clark says it's Jewish writings in general, not just the Mosaic law, talking about all the Old Testament scriptures. Adam Clark says it's talking about the moral law for the Gentiles and the Old Testament scriptures for the Jews. Well... Again, just to show you the difference of opinion on that, but I really think that what Paul is doing here, he's talking to Jews. I just think it's simpler and it makes more sense according to the previous context. If you listen to the previous audios, you'll see I emphasize that a lot. Now, Paul says, we know that whatever the law says, all those righteous commandments of the Mosaic law says to those who are subject to the law, that would be the Jews. Everything that Moses says to the Jews, we know that that Old Testament law speaks to Jews. Why? So that every mouth may be shut. In other words, so nobody can say, hey, I'm righteous. I'm righteous because I'm a Jew. And Paul said, no, you need to shut your mouth because the law says that you're a sinner, my Jewish brethren. You're a sinner just like I was a sinner. So I can't go and say, well, you know, I don't need to be condemned, God. Why are you condemning me? No, the law is going to shut your mouth because the law tells you that you're a sinner. And then Paul says the law shuts every mouth and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. Now, if you assume that the law here is speaking of the Old Testament law, you might say, well, then why does Paul here say the whole world may become subject to God's judgment? I think what he's saying is, look, I've already talked about in Romans 1 
and Romans 2 about judgment falling on the Gentiles. But you Jews don't seem to think that judgment applies to you. Well, I'm telling you that Mosaic law tells you that the whole world, Gentile, Jews as well as Gentiles, the whole world, including you Jews, is subject to God's judgment. So your mouth is shut. Don't complain about the condemnation that's coming on you when you encounter it. Paul says this in Romans 2, verse 12, All those who sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That's the Gentiles get judged by their law of conscience, their thoughts alternately accusing and defending them. And Paul in Romans 2, 12 continues on with the verse, And all those who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That would be the Jews who are under the law. They're going to be judged by the Mosaic law. So you're not going to get away with it if you're in the human race. You're going to get judged by some kind of law, and your mouth will be shut. The whole world, Jew as well as Gentile. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul continues, For no one will be justified in his sight, in God's sight, by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Now Paul is switching from knowing about the law, and having the law, and being condemned by the law. Now he's going to be talk, talking about how do we get out from this wrath and penalty and punishment that the law uh, divvies out to to sinners. Well, it ain't by being, it ain't by doing the works of the law by saying, I'm a good Jew. Again, he's getting on the Jews who keep saying that oh, I'm Abraham's child. I, I follow, I'm a Jew. I have the law of Moses. Therefore, I'm saved automatically, even though I'm out lying, cheating, stealing, and so forth. No, Paul says, you're not going to be justified by the works of the law, or by doing the works of the law, even. Not only by, you're not going to be justified by just having the works of the law, you're not even going to be justified by doing the works of the law. You're not going to be justified by having the law, but you're not going to be justified either by doing the works of the law. Nobody is justified. And when no one, that means neither Jew nor Greek. Because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Now what he's saying is, the purpose of the law is just to tell you that you're a sinner. It's not supposed to get you delivered from the law's righteous penalty and sentence. You're not going to be justified in God's sight by keeping the law. The law was never meant to justify anyone. It was rather meant to inform mankind of its sins. Let's read Romans 7, 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. The purpose of the law is that you may know sin. Paul continues in Romans 7, 7. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. Paul also says in Romans 4.15, for the law produces wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now what Paul means there is, where there is no law, there is no knowledge of transgression, because obviously there is transgression. Just because there is no law doesn't mean people aren't sinning all over the place, but it means that if you don't have the law, there is nobody to tell you that, that there is no way to know that you are sinning. The Gentile has the law of his conscience. The Jew has the law of Moses. So let's go back and repeat Romans 3.20. This is a key verse. It's part of the Romans road for evangelism. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Now, I really should emphasize it this way. No one will be justified in his sight by the works of the, of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. There's a contrast there. Paul is contrasting being justified and knowing what sin is. The first step is knowing that you're a sinner, and the second step is getting justified. We can't confuse the two. What does justified mean? It comes from the Greek, the kaiao, which means to show or declare to be righteous. Thayer's lexicon 
defines it as to declare guiltless, to pronounce righteous and therefore acceptable. The New Bible Dictionary says to conform with God's laws. It's a simple definition. It just means to be made righteous. Just as if I'd never sinned, as people often say. The, NA, the New American Study Bible translates it as, the new, excuse me, the New American Standard Bible translated as acquitted or vindicated. It's a legal term, a forensic term. Justified before God it means God pronounces you innocent. It's just as you never sinned. You are declared legally to be righteous. So go out and sin no more. All right, so let's give, since this is a key verse, let me give you a summary of Romans chapter 3, 1 through 20 in general terms. This is from Steve Ackerson. I am not righteous on my own apart from Christ. I cannot go to heaven by keeping the law, but in Christ I want to keep the commands of Jesus. On my own I do not understand God apart from Christ. Left to myself I do not seek God apart from Christ. My body is an instrument of sin apart from Christ. In other words, the way you define law is being apart from Christ. You want to follow the law and be in the law, well, then you're going to be apart from Christ because Christ does not intend to relate to you that way anymore. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Paul continues, Now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed. Apart from the law, that means the law hasn't got anything to do with revealing God's righteousness to you. Now, what that means is, apart from the law, God's righteousness in the sense that he has made you righteous, that has been revealed apart from the law. How, what does apart from the law mean? Through Christ. Now notice that God's, that, that God's righteousness, the salvation that comes through, our right, through God giving his righteousness to us has been revealed and attested by the law and the prophets. In other words, it was revealed even in the Old Testament that we are not saved by the law, but we're saved through faith in Christ. And that should counter the common misconception that there's no salvation by faith alone in the Old Testament. Let's look at some scriptures that show this. Genesis 15:6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him, he the Lord credited to Abraham, Abram, as righteousness. So you believe, Abraham believed, and then he got righteous. Didn't keep the works of the law. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the man the Lord does not charge with sin and in whose spirit is no deceit. Well, that shows very clearly there's salvation in the Old Testament, is there not? I just had a young Chinese Christian who wasn't a student, but she was a roommate of a student of mine, dedicated Christian. And she, her boyfriend, wanted to know where salvation was in the Old Testament. This is a great verse right here. All these verses are good to show that. It's a common question that people have. How do you get saved in the Old Testament? Well, you get saved because you're looking forward to faith of Christ's redemption, but they didn't know all the details of what Jesus was going to do on the cross, but they did believe the Lord. That's faith, and it was reckoned as righteousness. And in the Psalms, verse 32, it says, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven. So that means there's some people whose transgressions are forgiven, and that was in the Old Testament. And, of course, the famous verse is quoted three times in the New Testament, Habakkuk 2.4. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity. But the righteous one will live by his faith. And Paul says in another letter that in the Old Testament, the gospel was preached. Galatians 3.8. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Saw in advance. Now when Paul says the scripture, of course, he's talking about the Hebrew scriptures because the New Testament scripture had not been collected in a canon yet. So when he says the scripture, he says the Old Testament scripture saw in advance, that means in advance of the New Testament era, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, not by works, but by faith, 
And the Gentiles would be told the good news. Good news is gospel. They would be told the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, ahead of the time of Jesus, to Abraham. So Abraham got the gospel, saying all the nations will be blessed through you. So the good news that Abraham got was the famous Abrahamic promises of land, offspring, and blessings to the nations. So that's very clear. Salvation, even in the Old Testament Jews, even in the Old Testament, my brother, my Jewish brother, and it was not by keeping the law of Moses, but was by leap, believing in Jesus. Now Paul says in verse 21, but now, now, that could be simply taken as a chronological reference. Before was the time of the Old Testament Mosaic law, which provided no justification. But now, apart from that Old Testament law, but now in Jesus, we now have God's righteousness been revealed. And that doesn't mean righteousness that shows that God hates sin. That was revealed in the Old Testament, too. But this is righteousness in the sense of how we can get justified, how we can get that righteousness for ourselves, for ourselves. That but now could, could be a logical inference. You know how sometimes we say, da, 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 this is so, this is so, but now we have to deal with this. It doesn't mean chronologically, it means logically. So Paul, if, if you take it that way, Paul is making a contrast between a mere knowledge of the law without justification, but now we have righteousness obtained by Christ. That's the end of his study Bible's take on it. It doesn't matter either way. The point is, law does not get you righteous. It doesn't make you justified. That justification that came apart from the law was even attested in the Old Testament, in the Law and the Prophets, the Hebrew Scriptures. What does righteousness mean, by the way? In the previous verse... We talked about justified and defined justified just as if you had never seen to show or declare to be righteous. You will notice that the definition of justified and righteous is very close. For no one will be justified or declared righteous in his sight by the works of the law. But in the next verse, that's verse 20 and verse 21. But now righteousness has been revealed, a declaration of righteousness. The two terms are very close, the justification and righteousness. The Greek is dikaiosune, which is the state of being righteous, righteousness. The root is dikaios, which means right or correct, and by implication, innocent. So, if you're declared to be righteous, that means you are justified. So, in other words, when you hear the, see the term righteous, think justified. I'm righteous, I'm justified, same thing, means the same thing. Now, that word apart is very key here in verse 21, but now apart from the law. Now, this is simple, folks, but this is important. This is the only place... I've got notes all the way from Genesis 1-1 to the last verse in Revelation, and not in one place that I put all caps except right here. And this is what I've got in all caps. The law has nothing to do with making one righteous. Now, in an indirect sense, the law does make you righteous because it condemns you first. But the law alone will never make you righteous. It'll condemn you and make you feel like a piece of excrement. But... It ain't going to get you saved. It ain't going to wash you clean. It's not going to clothe you with a white robe of righteousness. It's not going to enable you to stand in the holy presence of God without fear and groveling. Romans 3.22, Paul continues, that is God's righteousness through Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what righteousness is he talking about? He's referring back to verse 21 where he says, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed. And I, and I was saying, I told you earlier that that's righteousness is not talking about the, the just and holy and pure nature of God. It's talking about our righteousness in Jesus Christ. How did I know that? Well, because in verse 22, the very next verse, Paul says, that is, in other words, I'm going to explain this righteousness which is obtained through faith. That, excuse me, that is that, uh, that righteousness which uh, has been revealed. 
in verse 21, that righteousness which has been revealed in verse 1, in verse 22, that is God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. So the righteousness that Paul is talking about here is how we can get righteousness through believing in Jesus Christ. And you notice that it's not by doing any works, not by being a good little boy and going to a Cub Scout meeting. Now, in verse 21, that righteousness, that righteousness which was revealed was apart from the law. And that righteousness which is apart from the law is identified in verse 22, which is that righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. That means apart from the law is identified with righteousness. In other words, if you want to get righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to have to do it apart from the law. You can't do it with the law. This really sort of needs to be emphasized because there's about five trillion Christians who are out there trying to get righteous by doing good works. Now, they don't keep the law of Moses because that's gone now, but they keep their evangelical Christian laws. I got to go to church on Wednesday night or I'm not a good Christian, that kind of stuff. Don't drink beer. Don't drink wine. I'm righteous. No Apart from any law, if you want to be righteous, it has to be through faith in Jesus Christ. And faith is just another word for believe or to have trust in. Simple definition. And when you believe something, it means you believe something you can't see. Of course, you can't see Jesus now, but you believe him anyway. And then Paul says this righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ comes to all who believe. Now, what does he mean by that? He means Jew as well as Gentile. He's Again, he's hitting that distinction between the Jew and the Gentile that the Jews made so strongly. He's trying to break down that wall of partition. Everybody who believes can have this righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Even those Gentile dogs that you Jews don't like so much, since there is no distinction, Paul says in verse 22. Now, notice that we have to have faith in Jesus Christ, not faith in faith. Oh, I just have faith. Have faith. You see this all the time in in the culture, in the, on the Internet, oh, just have faith, brother, believe, and you'll make it. Believe in what? You, faith has to have an object. You just can't say have faith. I remember I was watching, a. am ashamed to admit this, but I was watching the end of a Kenneth Copeland message before a big crowd on TV, and at the bottom he put his little, his little moniker, uh, what do you call it, his little logo at the bottom of the screen, and it had Kenneth Copeland, have faith in your faith. And I thought, well, isn't that just like the name it and claim it folks, the possess it and possess it crowd, to have faith in your faith, the hyper faith movement. No, you don't have faith in your faith. You have faith in Jesus. And then Jesus gives you faith to believe in him some more. It's a huge distinction. And, and faith does not mean blind optimism. That's, the, that's when people say, just have faith, brother, we'll believe. What was it, the New York Mets years ago? And. They were big underdogs, and they won the World Series a couple of decades ago. Only believe, believe, believe. And they would put those signs everywhere. Believe what? Well, of course, the implied object was believe in the Mets, but you just can't, just can't believe. you got to believe in something. And it can't be, I believe in music. I believe in science. I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower must grow. You know, just blind optimism. That's not what this means. So now we come to Romans 3.23, a milestone on the Romans road. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now we hear that we usually thank all individuals, which is true, but Paul, I'm sure here, is talking about all, meaning all groups of people, including Jews, because his main theme is, look, Jews, you've got to get justified. You, get, you just can't hold on to the, your heritage of the Mosaic law. For all have sinned and short, fallen short of the glory of God. Now what does glory mean? Glory comes from the Greek word dakos, which means a good opinion. If, some, if an athlete has glory, people have a good opinion of him. Thayer's lexicon says glory is magnificence, excellence, dignity, majesty, absolute perfection. I like that this is my definition. I, when I 
people ask me what glory means, I always say it means the public manifestation of one's excellent characteristics because it's not only talking about your dignity and your majesty, but it's also the public display of that dignity and majesty. And so good opinion kind of fits in with that. So it's the idea of a public display of God's incredible attributes. Now, the question is, is how has man, how have all of us, and by the way, if it's talking about Jews and Greeks, everybody's either a Jew or a Greek, excuse me, not a Greek, Gentile. If it's talking about Jews and Gentiles, everybody's either a Jew or a Gentile. So all of us, every human being on the earth has fallen short of the glory of God. Now, what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? There are three ways you can look at that. Here's the first option. Man's act of giving glory to God has come short. We have fallen short of giving God the glory that we're supposed to be giving him because we're interested in other things than God now. But when we were created, we spent Adam and Eve spent all their time saying, Oh, God, you're glorious, and we've come short of giving glory to God. That's option number one. Option number two, God's giving of glory to man has come short. So when we fall short of the glory of God, that means we sh fall short of God's giving glory to man and saying, Look, this is my excellent creation. I want the whole world to see the excellent characteristics of my creation, and now I can't do that anymore. i got to quit. I got to quit giving glory to mankind because mankind doesn't deserve me to glorify them anymore. So that's talking about the act of God giving glory falling short. Option number two. Option number three is man's state of glory has come short, not his act of giving glory to God, but just the way he is is not the way he was he was made to be. He was created to be the way he was created to be would, would inherently and automatically cause people to give glory to God. And now he's fallen and miserable. And I think that's the simplest way to look at it is option number three. We go to Romans 24, verse 3. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ. And who is the they? That means all who have fallen short, assuming they, they believe in Christ. They are justified, as I said earlier. Justified is just as if you never sinned. It means you're declared righteous. You are justified freely. That means you didn't pay anything for it. God did it because he loved you. He freely gave Jesus' blood as a sacrifice for your sins. Now, being justified has two aspects, as the NIV Study Bible points out, a negative and a positive aspect. From the negative aspect, believers are not guilty, so we are declared, forensically, legally, not guilty. But there's also a positive aspect of our justification. We are made to be righteous. So we're not guilty, we don't have the penalty of the law, but also in, in our nature, the way we are now, we are righteous. We're holy. We're sinners. We're saints, not sinners. Now, here's the NIV Study Bible summary of how God declares believers righteous. Freely, we don't pay for it. By his grace, which is another way of saying the same thing. Through the redemption that is in Christ and through faith of the believer. All right, well, faith, we know, of course, is believing in that which you can't see. And it means have trust in or believe. That's easy enough. Now, how about through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus? What does redemption mean? Redemption is a word that comes from the slave market. The liberator of the slave pays the redemption price, and the slave goes three, free. The Greek word is apolutrosis. It means a payment of a ransom to release slaves from their bondage. The word redemption is all through the New Testament scriptures. Let's talk about it. Galatians 3, verse 13, Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, for you were bought at a price. Bought, let me purchase price to buy you out of slavery was Jesus' blood, so you were bought. 
And the price was Jesus' blood. First Timothy 2, 5-6, through 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. Now that ransom, of course, is the purchase price that buys a slave out of his slavery. And what are we enslaved to? We're enslaved to sin, to death, to God's wrath, to his condemnation. Lots of bad things we're enslaved to, and we're free because we've been redeemed from it. Romans 3, verse 25, God presented him, God presented Jesus as a propitiation through faith in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him, that means God presented Jesus. That means God put him up on the cross. Now, it's true that evil human beings were used by God as agents, but it was ultimately God that did it, Acts 2, 22 through 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus, the Nazarene, was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. He was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. God was not taken aback. He was not surprised by the deicide that occurred there in Jerusalem in 30 or 33 A.D. Now, God was presented, Jesus was presented by God on the, on the cross. Why? As a propitiation. Oh, that word propitiation has caused a lot of trouble in the English translations. Lots of theological discussion over that. The NIV has sacrifice of atonement. I prefer the simple word propitiation. The NIV margin for propitiation says, as the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away sin. Propitiation has the idea of turning away wrath, appeasement, appeasing an angry God, if you will. But now it also has the idea of atonement. And atonement is the idea of covering. Our sins are atoned for, they're covered. And because our sins are covered, we now have reconciliation. We are at one with God. So sometimes when you hear people talk about atonement, they'll talk about the covering of sins. Sometimes they'll talk about the reconciliation that comes from the covering of sins. But those two, though, but atonement has also got to be tied in with propitiation. The reason that our sins are covered, or excuse me, the result of our sins having been covered is that God's wrath is turned away. There's the idea of propitiation. So you've got three words there you've got to handle. Three ideas, three concepts you've got to handle somehow with the translation. The propitiation emphasizes turning away God's wrath. Atonement emphasizes our reconciliation because God has covered our sins. And so we can summarize it this way. Propitiation means that our sins are covered. Therefore, God's wrath is appeased and turned away. Therefore, we are at one, reconciled with God. So that little phrase right there will cover that word propitiation, which, by the way, in the Greek is helasterios. Thayer says that means appeasing, having placating force. Steve Ackerson says it's the removal of wrath by offering a gift. It's the word that's used as the mercy seat in Hebrews 9.5, which is a covering, the covering of the ark. And that's where you get the idea of covering going along with propitiation. So anyway, we'll let the theologians argue that one. But that word propitiation is not used too much. How many times have you heard in sermon recently your, your friendly neighborhood evangelical preacher talk about propitiation? Well, the average wussy pussy evangelical won't use that word because the average wussy pussy evangelical doesn't believe there is any God's wrath that needs to be propitiated. And they'll talk about how God loves us, which is absolutely true. But why does he love us? He loves us because we don't have to die because of our sin. That's why he loves us. He, we, he loves us because his wrath has been turned away from us. Now, how is that wrath turned away? How is God's wrath appeased or propitiated? Through faith in his blood. That's a shorthand way of saying through faith in Jesus' blood sacrifice on the cross. 
The idea of blood is everywhere in the New Testament. I remember as a child, my, either my mother or grandmother said, liberals don't like blood. Talking about theological liberals. And I remember thinking, well, why would a theological liberal be so concerned about whether about Jesus' blood? I and mean, what's the big deal? Well, it is a big deal, folks, because that is the instrument through which Jesus paid for the wrath for our sins and appeased, expiated, another good word, and propitiated the wrath of God through his blood, through his blood sacrifice on the cross. He had to die. The life is in the blood. Life has to be given for life. We have sinned. We deserve capital punishment. Therefore, Jesus has to die to satisfy the the, the sins that we've done, including capital punishment, well, how is he going to do that? Well, he's got to die. You, you murder somebody, you got to die. Well, Jesus has taken away the sins of all the human race. who has murdered tons of people, so he's got to die too, and life is in the blood. Therefore, you have to have blood sacrifice. To show how important it is in the New Testament, let's read Romans 5, 9. Much more then, since we have now been declared righteous, how? By his blood we will be saved through him from wrath. Ephesians 1, 7, we have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2, 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but how? With the precious blood of Christ. Hebrews 10:19 Therefore brothers since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus 1 John 1:7 But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin So let's don't de-emphasize blood Now let's look at the last phrase of verse 25 God presented Jesus as a propitiation. Why? Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Jesus as a propitiation to demonstrate his righteousness. Why did he need to demonstrate his righteousness? Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. The sins in the Old Testament before the cross had not been atoned for yet. God had not shown his displeasure with them yet. In his restraint and his kindness, he let it go. The problem with that, if you, if God lets sin go too long without being punished, then pretty soon people are going to get the idea, well, God doesn't really care about sin. And that's exactly what happened to the Jews. This is what Paul keeps saying. Well, you Jews keep saying, well, you're Jews, and you don't need to have your sins taken care of because you're righteous in your own self-righteousness because you have the law of Moses. Well, guess what? God, you're mistaking the kindness of God. That kindness of God was supposed to be for your repentance. Instead, you're going out and sinning, 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 and you list all these terrible sins at the first part of chapter 3. So now God's had enough, and he's going to have to demonstrate that sin is evil, and he's going to demonstrate it in verse 25 by putting Jesus up on the cross. Now we go to verse 26. Verse 25 talked about Jesus taking care of the sins that were overlooked in the Old Testament and those sins being propitiated, God being propitiated for those Old Testament sins. Now we're going to go to verse 26 and talk about how God is going to demonstrate his righteousness in the, in the New Testament, take care of New Testament sins. Verse 26, God presented him, God presented Jesus to demonstrate, to publicly show, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. That means in the New Testament era, at the time after Jesus died on the cross, God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Two things that God needed to demonstrate in the New Testament time by putting Jesus on the cross. The first thing he, he had to demonstrate that 
God is righteous, that God does care about sin, not only in the Old Testament, verse 25, but in the New Testament, verse 26. So God declares himself to be righteous by punishing that sin, as people saw Jesus bearing that punishment. But there's another thing that God does in the present time. He declares righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. So basically, he's punishing sin and then justifying sinners, which is apparently two apparently contradictory things. He's punishing sin and justifying sinners all at the same time. This is a conundrum here. If he punishes sin, he kills humans. But if he saves humans, he doesn't punish sin, and it looks like he's unrighteous by not punishing sin. So how does he do that? Well, what is it? how does he solve the problem? He punishes sin by having Jesus die on the cross and then justifies sinners by letting us have faith in that punishment that Jesus did, that vicarious punishment. Jesus died in our place. Davidson Fawcett and Brown has a good quote on this. Glorious paradox. Just in punishing and merciful in pardoning, men can understand. In other words, men can understand that it's just for sin to be punished and that it's mercy when people who deserve sin don't get punished. We understand that, but just in justifying the guilty, in other words, we're still guilty and God still forgives us and has mercy on us, that startles people. All right, so in verse 25, propitiation showed that God was righteous. Verse 26, propitiation still shows that God is righteous, but it has another purpose in verse 26. His presenting Jesus on the cross as a blood sacrifice is to save sinners as well. And, of course, that's the good news, the gospel. And you notice, once again, Paul mentions the word faith. How are you declared righteous? You have to have faith in Jesus. That's getting saved, folks. And faith in the New Testament, you have faith or belief, which is the same thing. And sometimes aspects of faith are mentioned, such as repentance or obedience. That's fine. If you have faith in Jesus, you're going to repent, you're going to obey. I don't think you need to make a big theological distinction between those two because people get all balled up over that. There's been books of theology written about it. Just have faith in Jesus, believe in and obey him, and you'll be in good shape. We go to verse 27 of Romans 3. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By what of works? No, on the contrary, by a law of faith. First of all, boasting. Why is boasting excluded? By a law of works? And, of course, that's a rhetorical question that Paul answers by no. Well, what does a law of works mean? Well, that's the Mosaic law. In fact, law and works go together so much because the law lays out requirements, and then when you do those requirements, you're said to be doing a work of the law. So works, law, works, and law, they go together. And Paul is saying, no, you don't go boast about that. He says in the next chapter in Romans 4, 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to brag about, but not before God. So if you're saying, well... God accepts me, and I'm justified before God because of all the good things I've done, well, then I've got a reason to brag about all the good things I've done, just like Abraham. If Abraham was justified by works, he had something to brag about, but not before God. God's not interested in you bragging about how good you are. You're not good enough for God. So that's not going to do, and that's clear. Now, Paul says, well, then where is boasting? Where then does boasting come from? This is what you can brag about, your faith. He calls it a law of faith, but what he means is your faith. So if you want to boast about something, boast in the fact that you believe in something that's bigger than you, in Jesus Christ and what his, he has done, his blood sacrifice on the cross. You can boast about that because you're not boasting about what you're doing. You're just boasting about what you're believing in. And that's simple enough. That's what the verse means. However, that little phrase, law of faith, that used to cause me a lot of grief because I didn't quite understand it. Because the reason it's hard to understand is because it's oxymoronic. There's absolutely no overlap between law and faith the two concepts are diametrically opposed to one another so what did paul mean when he said a law of faith well i'm going to give you option number one which in my humble opinion is the correct option paul is using the word law ironically here so he could be putting air quotes around law quote law unquote of faith in other words a so-called law of faith 
as Steve Ackerson puts it, this could simply be a literary device, a play on words, law of works versus law of faith. So what he's saying is, oh, you want to be, you want to boast, boasting by the works of the law? Why don't you boast by the quote-unquote works of faith, which is your belief? There's another way you can take this law of faith. You can take it as shorthand for this, the law of Moses, which leads you to see that you're a sinner, and then that causes you to repent by believing in Jesus. I don't think that's what Paul meant. That's too much packed into that little phrase, law of faith. Another option is that the term law there just means a doctrine of faith or a teaching of faith or a tenet of faith or a principle of faith. That's John Gill's solution. That that works all right with me. I really do. I think he's trying to be ironic, though. uses the term law in an ironic sense. All right, we go now to Romans 3, verse 28, having left verse 27, which Paul probably used to criticize the Jews' boasting. Why did he even mention this boasting? Because the Jews were proud about the, their law, and so he's saying, uh-uh, it, that's excluded. Forget it. Quit boasting. We go to verse 28. For we, and I assume that's the editorial we, so Paul's talking about himself, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. There's faith again, faith in his blood, justified by faith apart from the law. Remember, we've already talked about justified. Justified means just as if you'd never sinned to be righteous. Righteousness, justification and righteousness are two different ways of saying the same thing. To be declared just by God forensically and legally, God in his courtroom looks at you and says, you're not a sinner anymore. It's just as if you'd never sinned. Now, how are you justified? How do you get yourself in that situation? By faith, by believing. And, of course, that assumes by believing in what? By believing in Jesus' blood sacrifice on the cross. And that faith is apart from the works of the law. And that apart is a wedge. There is no connection between faith and law. Now, there's something interesting about this verse. Martin Luther, when he translated it, he put the word alone in there. So it reads like this. For we conclude that a man is justified by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. Now, that's not in the Greek, and so he probably shouldn't have put it in there. I guess he was doing a loose translation, kind of like the good news version of the message or the NIV, maybe. But the idea is there, because if, if you get justified apart from the law, there is nothing else. It's a binary choice that you have. You, got, you can get justified by keeping the law, or you can get justified by faith. There ain't no other option. Only two options. So if you, are apart, if you don't get justified by the works of the law, there's only one thing left, faith alone. We go to verses 29 and 30 of Romans 3. Or is God for Jews only? Is he not also for Gentiles? Yes, for Gentiles too since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now, why does Paul ask this rhetorical question? Or is God for Jews only? He's referring to their arrogance. They are saying, hey, we're justified by having the law without faith. And since the Gentiles don't have the law, they can't be justified. And so, therefore, justification is for Jews only. And Paul is saying, are you really trying to say that? Are you trying to say that God is for Jews only just because you have the law? That there's no chance for a Gentile to be justified? Is he not also for Gentiles, he says in verse 29? Yes, he answers his own question. Yes, for Gentiles too. So justification is not only for Jews who have the law, but it's also for Gentiles who don't have the law, the Mosaic law. Now, of course, the Gentiles have the law of their conscience, but now Paul is talking about the Gentile law, the uh, Mosaic law. Verse 30, since there is one God, now Paul there appeals to 
what the Jews believe. The Jews, of course, they, you know, the Lord our God is one God. You know, what's the, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6? The Lord our God is one God. They had it wrapped in, put into their little phylacteries, taped to their foreheads and their wrists. There's one God. Oh, the Jews really believe that. Well, if there's one God, don't you think the same God who made the Gentiles might uh, think that there's one way to get them saved? Not just through the law for the Jews and some other way for the Gentiles and, oh, maybe no other way for the Gentiles? No, there's one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. There is one God and one way, and that's faith. Faith, faith, belief, 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 not by doing the works. He will justify the circumcised, that's the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, through faith. Peter saw that. Remember when he went to Cornelius' house, the Gentiles' house, after having that vision of all the nasty, unclean Levitical animals coming down on his sheet? And I think it was an angel told him, Peter, eat that nasty, those snakes and those pigs and those shrimp. And Peter said, no, I can't do that. I, I don't do that. And the angel said, eat it. God doesn't show any favoritism. And so when Peter followed that vision and went up to Caesarea, to the Gentiles' house there, Cornelius' house, verse 34 in Acts 10, Peter began to speak. Now, I really understand that God doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't only have salvation for the Jews, but he has salvation for the Gentile also. God doesn't show favoritism, Peter says, but in every nation, the person who fears him, in every nation, the nation is just another word for Gentiles, but in every Gentile place, the person who fears him and does righteousness is acceptable to him. You got to believe in him. You got to fear him. Now, he says does righteousness, but of course what he means is believing in Jesus and then the righteousness comes as an outflow of your faith. Paul says the same thing in Philippians 3.9. Be found in him not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. There's that mighty juxtaposition, that black and white distinction between faith and law. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. You want to get righteous, you better believe. We go to verse 31 of Romans 3. Do we then cancel the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, there are a lot of people who like to use this verse to say that, see there, the law still has a use for Christians. And I'm mainly referring to Reformed theologians who talk about the third use of the law. They say, yeah, the moral, excuse me, the ceremonial aspects of the law, the festivals and so forth, the rituals are done away with, the judicial principles of the law about what are the laws for rape and inheritance and slavery and all that stuff, all that's done away with. But we still have the moral law of Moses to which I say, uh-uh, not so. That's because I'm a New Covenant theology person. But unfortunately, when I say, ah, uh, the moral law of Moses, it's the moral law of the law of Christ that we're under, not the moral law of Moses. And then this verse is quoted to me. Do we then cancel the law through faith? Absolutely not. Dan, you just cancel the law. You are an antinomium. You're against the law. Well, first of all, I'm not against the law of Christ. and That's law of Christ. So that means I'm not antinomian, anti-law. We're not talking about being without law. We're talking about what law are we under? We're under the law of Christ. And so, but we read this verse and we say, do we then cancel the law of Moses is what he's talking about, the law of Moses through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. All right, so this is a good verse for theological discussion here. Let me preface the discussion by asking you this. Do we uphold the law of contracts in this country? Absolutely. The legal system absolutely depends upon an enforcement of the law of contracts. So if I have a contract with you, I agree to sell you my smartphone for $100, and you agree to pay me $100. You pay me $100, I deliver the smartphone to you. What happens to my contract? 
did I uphold the law of contract? I certainly did because I performed the contract and, the, and my buyer performed the contract. So we upheld the law of contracts, but what happens to the contract? It's canceled, nugatory, null, void. Put it in the folder, put it in the file cabinet, and forget about it because it's gone. It has no legal enforcement. I cannot take that contract to any court anywhere and enforce it because it's gone. Likewise, the law of Moses is unenforceable now against Christians. God is not using the law of Moses to enforce it against Christians. He's using the law of Christ. Well, having said that, why does Paul then say, on the contrary, we uphold the law? Well, just like I upheld the law by performing that contract, by showing that I believed in its fulfillment, we have to show that the law of Moses has been fulfilled. And once the law of Moses has been fulfilled, then we don't need the law of Moses anymore. Well, how has the law of Moses been fulfilled? Well, you know as well as I do, it's because Jesus died on the cross. And that fulfilled the law of Moses. He was the ultimate sacrifice that satisfied all the types of the blood sacrifices. All right, so let's look at, let me, let me look at two options on how the law of Moses, how our faith upholds the law of Moses. Not by saying that the law of Moses still exists, but in what sense does our faith uphold the law? Option number one, the law teaches us what sin is. And then faith saves us from the law's consequences, which is sin and death. So we uphold the law by saying, yeah, we need to get saved from that. And so now we believe in Jesus. We're not justified by the law. We don't keep the law because we're not under the law anymore, moral or otherwise, because we're under the law of Christ. But nonetheless, we uphold the law because we recognize that the law points me out as a sinner, and before I accept the the blood sacrifice of Christ, I'm under that law, and it's condemning me and making me exist under the wrath of God, subject to the pains of hell. Romans 2.20, Paul says that we in the, in the Old Testament law, we have the full expression of knowledge and truth in the law. We know what the law is. It tells us that there's sin. Romans 3.20.21, for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. So we have knowledge, of, you know, so... The law teaches us what sin is, and that's how we uphold the law, by acknowledging its rightful place. What did Paul tell Timothy? The law is great, the law is holy. If it's used righteously, if it's used correctly, it's to show us that we're sinners. That's how we uphold the law, by pointing out the law's proper use to illuminate sin and shine light on sin. The other option as to what it means to uphold the law by our faith is, faith produces the righteousness that the law demands, but the law cannot produce. So that's so basically we fulfill the law. We uphold the law by fulfilling it and by being in Christ and fall and and then putting ourselves under the law of Christ. For example, in Romans thirteen, eight through ten we read this Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment are all summed up by this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And, of course, Paul is basically talking about love that comes from Jesus Christ. You do that, you're going to fulfill the law, and that's how you uphold the law, by doing what the law requires. But that doesn't mean you're under the law. If you don't do what the law requires, you have are subject to its penalty. Well, let's leave that nice theological problem there and go and summarize chapter 3. Roughly, generally, this is from Steve Ackerson. I have righteousness from God since I believe in Jesus and his propitiatory work for me. My righteousness is the result of God's grace, not my obedience to any laws. I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. My faith that God grants righteousness apart from the law serves to uphold the true purpose of the law, to silence all those under it, all those unbelieving Jews under the law by showing them their sinfulness, 
It was never meant to be a means of righteousness. Ladies and gentlemen, we have now finished that very important chapter of the book of Romans chapter 3. We will now in our next audio take up Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 3 finished with the idea of being justified by faith. Romans 4 is going to go into that in great detail. We'll take that up in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.